Well, thanks again for that song, Psalm 23. That's about all you need, isn't it? In life, it has uh, ministered to me so many times, and I've preached it at the graveside many times, and it's brought comfort. The only time I couldn't remember it was when I was in the MRI machine. (laughs) Just freaked right out. Couldn't even remember the 23rd Psalm. So I have a grudge against the medical profession for (laughs) inventing those things. Well, it's good to be here today, and thank you for coming. I was riding out here trying to calculate in my mind how many times I may have preached from the East White Oak pulpit, did some, probably some bad math in my head. And I have to think it's somewhere between 1,500 or 2,000 times. And then I had a thought, I bet not one of those people can remember any of those sermons. (laughs) It's true, you know, sermons are a little bit like meals. You know, we need them for our sustenance, but very few are memorable. I mean, if you think about all the meals you ate in the past year, Maybe you can remember a really good one at a restaurant, or maybe you can remember something grandma whipped up at Thanksgiving or something like that, but most meals are not memorable, neither are most sermons, but we do need them. So even though Pastor Scott is gone, he has said, uh, you need this sermon, so here we are this morning. I want you to take a look at this screenshot from a video. I've used it a few times at has an illustrative purpose here and there. And the story of the video, I'm not going to show it because I think, uh, you know, the faint of heart might not appreciate it. What happens in this video is that water buffalo you see in the water is a young water buffalo, and he is attacked by a pack of lions in a, a camp, you know, one of these game preserves in South Africa. And these lions start to tear into this water buffalo, and he hustles into the water. But then you see in the, in the foreground there, the crocodile comes to get him. So he's getting it from both directions, uh, the lions on the land and the crocodile in the water. And they're about to tear him to pieces. And then comes something interesting. The whole herd of the water buffaloes come back to that spot. They turn their backsides to the lions, begin to kick the lions and drive them off. They begin to go after the crocodile too and get him out of the way. And they they actually rescue this poor baby water buffalo. So the story ends good, although all of that takes quite a long time. It's a fairly long video. You can look it up if you want. And I believe it's the Kruger Game Park there in South Africa. Um, it's been watched many hundreds of thousands of times. I've watched it a hundred thousand times myself. (laughs) I kind of enjoy it. But it illustrates that, you know, every form of life has enemies and predators, even human beings. What does the Bible say? The devil goes about as a what? Roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So the human being has enemies, so does the Christian. We speak often of the world, the flesh, and the devil, which are the enemies of the Christian, and the world and the flesh 
and the devil encourage sin, and sin is destructive to the Christian, sin discourages the Christian, sin damages the Christian, sin troubles the Christian. In our passage this morning, which we'll turn to in a moment, sin is mentioned five times in five verses. It's a prominent topic in Scripture. And, uh, you know, Pastor Scott was doing a good job of showing the devastating effects of original sin as he went through Genesis chapter 3, and as I sat out there where you're sitting, I had a thought. And the thought was, yeah, this is good, learning about original sin and the devastating impact it has had upon humanity, but maybe we ought to go a little further and keep on going on this delightful topic and talk a little bit about how we Christians should respond to our sins. So the next two Sundays, uh, that will be our topic, uh, the Christian life and the reality of sin. So if you have your Bible there, let's turn to 1 John chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 5 through 10 this week, and then next week, verses, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Uh, Verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness." If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, in the context of 1 John, we can think back to the Gospel of John, which had an evangelistic purpose. John was writing that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that you may have life in his name. But the book of 1 John is written many years later near the end of the New Testament era, and he's writing to mature believers, to congregations of believers, and his purpose is more to explain how to walk in our relationship with God. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. We have this relationship with God, and we are writing these things that our joy may be complete, that we learn how to have joy in our walk with God. And so there's a clear structure, I think, in this text we are looking at here. John is not always linear in his organization, but he is normally clear. And we see familiar biblical terms here. We see light and darkness. We see sin. We see fellowship with God. We see the blood of Jesus. These are all things familiar to the believer. And there's a clear message here about the reality of sin and what we do about it in the Christian life. And I think if we can get what this is saying, it will be encouraging to us. Now, the structure of this text is verse 5 has one overarching truth that we have to understand. And following that, there are five if-we-say clauses. 
if we say, five of them, three of them are false claims. Three of them are false claims with a conclusion. Two of them are corrective words which correct those false claims. So we could diagram it like this. The one overarching conviction of verse 5 is that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. This is where John starts. Then on the left we see three false claims in verse 6, in verse 8, and in verse 10. Each of those have a conclusion proving that they are false. And then John also adds then two corrective instructive words in verse 7 and verse 9. So we'll take it like this. We'll work our way through the overarching one fundamental conclusion that he starts with. We'll look at the three false claims. We'll look at the two corrective words. And I think it will be a good word to us as we understand how we respond to our sins in the Christian life. So let's look at this overarching conviction of verse 5. And he says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. A very strong statement, absolute in its nature. He's not really making a statement, he's making an announcement. He's preaching this, he's proclaiming it. There is to be no argument, not one person is to miss this truth. If you're going to understand the Christian life, if you're going to understand the Bible, if you're going to understand the Word of God, if you're going to understand the Gospel, you must understand this first principle of theology, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. God is uncreated purity. He is the Father of all light and all truth. He shines his perfection upon all that he encounters. He exposes sin wherever it is. Think back to Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were immediately confronted. Why? Because God is light and in him is no darkness at all, and no falsehood, no untruth, no sin can stand in his presence. Now darkness is the realm of Satan, the realm of sin, the realm of evil, the realm of deception, the realm of lies, the realm of blindness, and there is none of that in God. In fact, wherever God goes, he exposes darkness for what it is. So this is how we approach it. This is how we start. This is how we begin our understanding of the Bible. This is how we begin our understanding of the gospel. This is how we begin our understanding of the Christian life. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Now, here's the big problem. People tend not to start there, correct? In our society today, for example, people start in the wrong place, the exact opposite place. They start with, I am light, and in me is no darkness at all. I'm the truth. Whatever I feel is the truth. I must be affirmed. I must be accepted, no matter what I say, no matter what I do. 
everything must be accommodated to me. I'll listen to something, and if it meets my approval, if it gives me what I want, if I feel like accepting it, I will. I'm the judge. I am light, and in me is no darkness at all. However, that's not where John starts. That's not where the Bible starts. The starting point of theology, the starting point of the gospel, the starting point of the Bible, the word of God is, I am light and in me is no darkness at all. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And see, that truth today has been obscured, which is why we find evangelism so difficult today, because people are unwilling to start at that point. But that is the best place to start. If you want to go to heaven when you die, if you want a Savior who will carry you all the way to glory, you have to start where God starts. J.C. Ryle, the evangelical Anglican preacher and writer, said, thank God when you feel your sinfulness. He that has any feeling of his own sinfulness ought to thank God for it. That very sense of weakness, wickedness, corruption, which perhaps makes you uncomfortable, is in reality a token for God. That's where the Bible starts. That's where Genesis 3 starts. That's where the gospel starts. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The whole ministry of Jesus Christ was to come to destroy the works of the devil. This is where the Christian life starts. This is where justification starts. This is where sanctification starts. The whole, the whole thing is about God's purity and perfection and our sins. That's the whole narrative of Scripture. If you don't start there, you're going to end up where you don't want to be. So that's the overarching conviction. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Now, on the left, you'll see three false claims that relate to this, and John brings them up one by one. The first false claim in verse 6 reads like this. If we say, and by the way, we really don't know who these guys are who are saying this. John does not identify them, but we know that in the late New Testament era when John was writing, there were many false cults, many quasi-Christian sects, many who went out from them but were not of them, many false teachers, many false prophets, many false pastors, many pagan religion, many false religious ideas. So there was a whole amalgamation of all kinds of false religious ideas out there in the world, just like there are now. <laughs> Have you noticed that? So the false claim here in verse 6 is, if we say... We have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. So what are these people saying? Well, they are saying, yeah, I'm in fellowship with God. I believe in God. I have a relationship with God. I'm a Christian. But you look at them, and they are walking in darkness. Their lives are characterized by satanic darkness and satanic deeds. That is an impossibility. Look at the conclusion. Anyone who has that claim but walks in darkness is lying and not acknowledging their sin. Remember, lying can be more than a verbal propagation of falsehood. It can also be living a falsehood. 
So there is someone out there who says, I have fellowship with God, I'm a Christian, I believe in God, yet they are walking in utter darkness. That is not someone who has understood or received the gospel. There's a contrast here between fellowship with God and darkness. Those two things are polar opposites. Fellowship with God is the new birth, a relationship with God, eternal life, the gift of God. Darkness is the realm of Satan, the realm of sin, the realm of a fallen world. So you have a person who is living in that realm, living in darkness, following darkness, listening to darkness, evidencing darkness, that person is not in fellowship with God. That is an impossibility. That's what John is saying. He's being very clear. I mean, this is a theme in John. If you want to turn the page over to chapter 3, say in verse 6, he makes these stark statements over and over again. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And he means by that continues on with satanic works of darkness. Verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sin, not just commits a sin here and there, but one making a total practice of sin, living sin, following sin, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. No one who is truly born again is going to live like that. So we see people professing one thing, walking, but walking in darkness, committed to sin, committed to the devil's works, they do not know God. They have not experienced the new birth, no matter what they say, no matter what they say. Those walking in darkness, if they make such a claim, are living a lie. Now you know this fellow, he ran for president, Apparently, he wants to be president. Pete Buttigieg, whatever his name is, was raised, you know, as a nominal Catholic, and then eventually joined the Episcopal Church, where he now worships. And that was a good move when he wanted to be president. Did you know that of all the religious denominations, the most, the denomination who have had the most presidents has been the Episcopal Church? So he's made a good move there if he wants to be president. He's in the cabinet now. And uh, he says, you know, I'm a Christian. I was married in church. I go to church. I pray before my meals. I worship the Lord. I follow Jesus. He has said all kinds of things like that. But he's an avowed homosexual married to a man, which is no marriage at all. It's the rejection of marriage, an offense to the creator of marriage. At his marriage ceremony in the Episcopal Church, he had portions of the Supreme Court's decision legalizing gay marriage read. That was their scripture. His concept of religious liberty is such that there should be no provision for religious institutions or churches to hire according to their religious beliefs. As to what the Bible says about homosexuality, he dismisses that by saying, well, those were the moral expectations of the era in which they're recorded. In other words, the Bible is out of date, stands against the word of God. In other words, I'm right. God's word is wrong. In me is no darkness at all. When he talks about salvation, he talks about 
helping the oppressed, which is fine, but that's not the gospel. He doesn't talk about the core doctrines of the gospel of sin and salvation, the atonement of Jesus, repentance and saving faith. He was asked on TV one day, is Jesus your Lord and Savior? He was rather uncomfortable, but he said, um, yes, but that means we do good works and we help the poor. So he is saying, I am a Christian, I am a church member, I am a follower of Jesus, but he's walking in darkness, you see. When he wrote his thesis at Harvard, he wrote it on the Puritans' sermons, and his conclusion was they were very, very wrong and their influence was bad. So he was against gospel sermons. Why? Because he's walking in darkness. He doesn't understand the gospel. If he does understand it, he rejects it. So there are many, many people like this who in one way or another claim a relationship with God, claim they follow Jesus, claim they believe in him, but they are walking in darkness. So we pity these people. We press the gospel down upon them. The ungodliness of their lives is exposed by the light. Of course, it can be reached. There have been people who have been in the deepest darkness of sin and only have received the grace of God. It breaks in, it opens their eyes, they turn and believe. But someone who is walking in all of this darkness and sees no need of that, no, no matter what they say, they are not born of the Spirit, they do not know God. The truth is not in them. We don't want to be confused about this. Let us not be deceived. Let us be discerning. Secondly, second false claim, verse 8, we have no sin. If we say we have no sin, or some people say, we have no sin. And the conclusion there is, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us. So, there's a person out there who says, I don't have a sin problem. Sin's not a problem. I do not sin. I excuse myself from that judgment of my life, and therefore they have put themselves outside the possibility of forgiveness. The whole thrust of the gospel, the whole thrust of the Bible, the whole message of the narrative of Scripture is the need for the pardon of our sins. The whole ministry of the Lord Jesus, the whole coming of the Lord Jesus, was to destroy the works of the devil, which is sin. That's the whole story. That's it. If you take that out, you got nothing. And these people will come and say, I don't need that. I don't, I don't subscribe to the essential problem the Bible proclaims. I have no need of that salvation. And there's so many people who say in one shape, form, or another, you know, I'm good. I'm going to make it. God is pleased with me. God is happy with my life. God won't judge me. God isn't a judge. Uh, there's no such a thing as a problem of sin. Well, what is the conclusion that John has? They're deceived. They're lying to themselves. Now, here's our friend Oprah. I remember back when 9-11 happened, and it was quite a shock when that terrorist thing happened back 20 years ago or so, 
And they had a prayer service at Yankee Stadium. I mean, it was big. I mean, everybody was there. Bette Mittler sang. They asked me to sing, but I couldn't make it. Uh, Oprah, Oprah preached. Uh, the celebrities were there. The politicians were there. The big shots were there. The whole country was riveted on it. You know, after this dramatic terrorist attack, the country was hurting. People were looking for answers. Tons of people killed. What does this mean? What's going to happen? And everybody was watching this, and everybody was listening. What did Oprah preach? What was her message? What was her sermon? Here's what she preached. I believe when you lose a loved one, by the way, who cares what Oprah believes? I believe when you lose a loved one, you gain an angel whose name you know. Over 6,000 angels and counting were added to the spiritual roster these past two weeks. What really matters is who you love and how you love. Do you see any gospel there, friends? Uh, no, no. Actually, when you leave this world, what really matters is that your sins have been forgiven by Jesus Christ. That you have fellowship with God. That you have an eternal relationship with him. That you know for sure your sins are washed away. That you'll be with God forever. There's no doctrine that teaches that sudden and tragic death leads to angelic status. There's no doctrine in the Bible that says sudden and tragic death leads to automatic salvation. But we have many people, many false claims. You know, all the moralists, the do-gooders, all the religions of the world, the Hindus, the Muslims, the Buddhists, along with the Americans, the Protestants and the Catholics, trusting in their own goodness, not thinking their sins before a holy God are a problem. God is here to do us favors. I'm the judge of God. God's not the judge of me. Deceived. Deceived. The most obvious thing in all the world is that human beings are sinful. Everywhere I look, I see pride, lust, envy, greed, hatred, discord, slander, selfishness. The whole world is snarled up, submerged in sin. That's why we need armies. That's why we need police. That's why we need government agencies. That's why we need the United Nations to constantly enforce the standards so that you can get people to behave. You know, I look around the world and I don't see all this goodness popping out everywhere. But when the human heart begins to say, I don't have any sin, don't talk to me about sin, that's not a problem, I'm fine the way I am, deceived. Can such people be reached? Yes, of course. There may be many sitting here who one day would have said such a thing or affirmed such a thing. But we need, in that case, Bible. We need gospel. We need conviction of sin. We need the Spirit of God to bring it home. So a third false claim, and this one appears to be very similar to the earlier one, but there's a slight change in the grammar. From verse 8 to verse 10, John shifts the grammar to a perfect tense, which stresses completed in the past and, pa and continuing action and results. So the idea here is we have never sinned and there's no sin abiding in us. That's the claim. And of course, the conclusion of that claim is we make God a liar. The denial of sin, denial of original sin, denial that I'm born into sin, an affirmation that I'm good, my nature is good. 
I mean, this is the oldest folly of the human race, isn't it? Remember back in Genesis chapter 3, when you had Adam, you had Eve. And then Genesis chapter 4, you had Cain. And when God confronted the sin of Adam and Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, Adam blamed Eve. When you go over to Cain and Abel, Cain is like, that's not my responsibility, I'm not my brother's keeper. You know, I've got no sin in me. It's somebody else. Blame somebody else for what has gone wrong. So over and over, in many ways, forms, shapes, denying sin, excusing sin, and you see, this defames God. This makes God a liar. Oh, what a horrible thing to do. Calvin put it this way, those who claim purity for themselves blaspheme God. Just think what a great sin it is to say to God, my sin is not a problem, or I don't have any sin. For we see that everywhere he represents the whole race of man is guilty of sin. Whosoever then tries to escape this charge carries on war with God and accuses him of falsehood. We thence learn that we then only make a due progress when we become truly humbled. Yes. We're not going to make any progress in the Christian life unless we humbly acknowledge our sins. So as to groan under the burden of our sins and learn to flee to the mercy of God. You know, it's a hard uh, job these days to preach the gospel in our society, but we should be encouraged even though much of what our society believes contradicts the gospel, it was no different in John's time. Same thing. Satan doesn't have any new material. He just recycles it. People start their theology with themselves. They don't appreciate the holiness of God, and they make multiple, multiple errors. And so what a day to preach the gospel, what boldness we have to have. What a filling of the Spirit, what a love of the truth, what firmness of conviction is necessary to preach the gospel today so that people may learn to flee to the cross and flee to the Savior. Now, what does all of this have to do with the Christian life, friends? We got this overarching conviction. Remember, John is really writing to Christians here. He wants Christians to understand this because it's going to impact the Christian life, our understanding of Christian living. And so he's saying this overarching conviction, God is light and in him no darkness at all. That's where we start. There are false claims all around us about sin and salvation. It's deception. It's wrong. And now he's going to issue two more if we say clauses. And they do some teaching about the Christian life. They do some correction and instruction. So there are two beautiful truths in verses 7 and nine, which uh, keep us from the false ideas and help us to walk in grace, and they give guidance to the Christian life. So let's look at these two, verse seven, first of all. The first thing we do regarding our own sins is we keep on walking in the light, verse seven. But if we walk in the light, he is in the light. So we keep walking after God, and we keep having our fellowship with one another. And while we do so, the blood of his son is cleansing us from all sins. 
Now, when we come to faith in Christ, we go into the light. We are translated into the kingdom of light. Paul writes, For one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. Don't deny your sins. Walk in the light of God and and see your sins in the Christian life. And then as you do, you'll begin to put aside all these shameful things and perhaps you'll have some sanctification. Paul, in the midst of recording his testimony before the Roman officials, the Lord said to him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Rise and stand upon your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And so the whole point of the gospel is to bring us into the light and God shines his light upon us and we see our sins. We repent and we believe. We understand the power of the Lord Jesus to pardon us and we are united to God and we continue to walk in that fashion. Not denying our sins, but acknowledge them, bring them to God, humbly receive his pardon again and again Thanking God, seeking God, learning of God, knowing God, desiring God. That's the hallmark of fellowship with God, a relationship with God. At the end of verse 7, we see that walking in light means acknowledging our sins and going back again and again to that pardon. So the Christian life is not a sin-denying life. It's living in the light of God and one by one and constantly bringing those sins to the blood of Christ. That's the true Christian life. When we sin, the light of God does not leave us. Fellowship with God does not leave us. Rather, we are driven back to the refuge of Jesus' pardon. Where else can we go? My brother, my sister, when we sin, where else can we go? but back to the cross and back to the blood again and again and again and again. That's the foundation of a happy and holy life. And we pray that people would come under this sweetness, walk in the light, return to the pardon, not denying our sins. Now this fellow, I used to use this book all the time, Disciples Are Made Not Born. I had many, many discipleship groups and stuff back in the day where we would read this book. It's a wonderful book. He was a navigator, and he wrote this lovely book on discipleship, and he had a very good point on this in that book. If you define sin incorrectly, you will lose touch with your depravity. If you lose touch with your depravity, you will lose your gratitude for the great salvation that we have. So the answer is not to deny our sins in the Christian life, my brethren, 
It is not to get discouraged that we have sinned. It's normal to be discouraged with our sins, disgusted with our sins, frustrated with ourselves. That's what the light does. That's a, that's a sign that we're walking in the light. If you get frustrated with your sins and disgusted with yourself, hallelujah, you're in the light. Do you see? And then we think, you know, maybe if I just get close enough to the Lord, I won't sin anymore. Well, here's some bad news on that deal. The closer you get to the Lord, the more you will see your sins. See, even in a way, you see, how our sins glorify God because of the immensity of his love and pardon for us. And so we are, yes, we're going to live with this struggle. As Galatians puts it, there's a war between the flesh and the spirit within us. But that struggle is a sign and a mark that we are in the light. For the person who does not have that struggle, we pity them. They're in the darkness. So what is the answer? Keep on walking, brother, sister. Keep on pushing on in the light. And you know what? In time you'll see a powerful, sanctifying effect. Now, the second thing we do is we confess our sins. This is a partner of the point made in verse 7, verse 9. If we confess our sins, <clears throat> he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I suppose we might say this is one of the key verses of all the New Testament. Perhaps John has said all that he has said in this passage to say this. No, we do not deny our sins. We don't gloss over them. We name them one by one in all honesty and repentance with our sincere regret. The word confess here is a compound word. The word to speak and the word which means the same. To speak the same. To agree with God. We agree with God. We make a confession. Walking in the light is living a life of repentance, confessing our sins, returning to the pardon. And notice how John stresses God's righteousness and faithfulness. Even as we sin in the, Christ, in the Christian life, we find the loving faithfulness of God is unchanging, and he is constantly in his faithfulness and righteousness cleansing our sins in the promise we have in Christ. The term for forgive here is the term to send away. One time the Bible says Jesus sent the crowd away. He sent them away. Get lost, you guys. Be gone. That's what God has said to our sins. They are sent away. So, you think you have sinned a sin which defeats you, which cannot be forgiven? which has wrecked your life, which has ruined your Christian experience, which has totally blown it? Do you think that that sin that besets you, that you struggle against, that you can't get rid of, that bothers you, do you think that that has destroyed you? Think again. It is gone in the blood of Christ. And you affirm that each and every time you bring that sin back to God in confession. Confess it and carry on in the light. Live under the pardon of God. This is the Christian life. It is a humbling life. It is a repentant life. It is an honest life. It is a life where we day by day live and experience the blessed, never-ending, faithful grace of God in pardon. So you keep on going. I've met so many Christians who said, I'm so disgusted with myself, I just gave up. 
Wrong. If John was here, he'd throttle you. I'm much nicer than him, so I won't throttle you. I'll just say, no, 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 no. Keep walking in the light. Keep confessing. You will find that over time that will have a sanctifying influence. Yes, our sins are with us, but they aren't going to win. Even the worst ones that we have done, even the ones that continue to trouble us, they are sent away. In confession, we return to this. So what is John teaching here? Well, you got to start at the right place. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. The, the reality of God and his morally sinless and pure nature is that it exposes sin. So there's no point in denying it. If somebody says, I have fellowship with God, they walk in darkness, well, they're lying. If somebody says, we have no sins, they're deceived. Somebody says, we have never sinned, we don't have any sin abiding in us while you're defaming God. No, no. In the Christian life, we don't accept any of that. We understand we are sinners. That's why we've come to faith in Christ. That's why we listen to the gospel. That's why we return to him. And so, with regard to our sins in the Christian life, we keep on walking in that light of the knowledge of sin and salvation. And each and every time we confess our sins, we return to God under his gracious pardon. By the way, what motivates you in the Christian life? Some big hammer over your head? Or the merciful, loving grace of God who loves you and pardoned you and wants you and is going to keep you forever. So grace drives the Christian life, not guilt, not the hammer, the grace of God. So we are not confessing, brethren, to gain our pardon. Because we have our pardon, we continue to confess, and this is walking in the light. In a way, somehow, God has even turned our sins to something of his own goodness and glory. What a God we serve. Remember this guy, John Newton? He wrote the great hymn, Amazing Grace, right? And we all, I think, maybe are familiar with his story. He was a slave ship captain and a slave trader. He was converted wonderfully, eventually became a pastor. It may surprise you that John Newton continued with that foul work for some years after his conversion. He was somewhat undiscipled, and he did not grow in holiness as a Christian very much in those first few years. He was in a bad environment. He was traveling the world on those ships without pastor, without church, trying to walk in the light. He had the light. He was disgusted with his sins. He had a couple of books, but no pastor, no preacher, no fellowship, no church. And his growth was slow, and he struggled with his sins deeply. He wrote in his diary during that period, I am greatly hindered by a cowardly spirit. Finally, around the age of 30 years old, he got out of the ship captaining business and got in a better environment. He married a godly woman, got under some godly pastors and mentors and teachers, and got in the Word. In that period of time, he heard the great Whitfield preach, and he got so struck by the power of the gospel that he himself desired to preach the gospel. He had a whale of a time getting anybody to take him as a pastor, but it finally worked out at the age of 39. 
And he began to preach the gospel and was a long and faithful worker in the Lord's church. And ultimately, we can see in his life that the light was winning. He became a godly man, a faithful pastor, a holy man, although ever conscious of his sins. You know, his epitaph, he wrote himself, John Newton, once an infidel, libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, by the rich mercy of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, and appointed him to preach the faith he had long languished to destroy. But what interests me is not his claim of pardon for his many sins, but a note he wrote when he was 76 years old in his journal. Watch what he says. Let me remember with shame my more aggravated sins committed against the light and the abuse of thy choicest blessings after I knew thy name. And yet as vile as I am in thy sight, thou hast so preserved me from gross evils and errors that I have not been afraid to show myself amongst thy people or the world. You know, people are too ashamed to come to church. They think their sins keep them out of church. They're disgusted with themselves. Look what he says there. And vile as I am in thy sight, thou hast so preserved me from gross evils and errors that I have not been afraid to show myself among thy people or the world. And my worthless name has been known by thy blessing on my pen and on my ministry far and near. You see, even our sins exalt the grace of God. So no, we don't deny our sins in the Christian life, brethren. We walk in the light. Yes, we see our sins. We acknowledge them. We confess them one by one. And this itself has a powerful sanctifying effect as the grace of God always does. And so, believer, understand, in a way, our sins help us on to God. We've nowhere else to go but to his grace and pardon, to the cross of Jesus again and again. And so we walk in the light, we confess our sins, and we return to that glorious, endless, mattress, wondrous pardon time and time again. This is the Christian life. We are in the light. Let's pray together. We thank you, our Heavenly Father, that you are light, and in you, is no darkness at all. Oh Lord, how you have shown us our sins. And what a mercy it is. And though they plague us in the Christian life, and though they arise again and again, and though we are disgusted by them, we thank you that this is a mark of the light. And we pity those who can live in sin and denial and be as happy as they can be. Thank you, Lord, for the light. And thereby, Lord, thank you for this pathway of confession whereby we may live under your pardon daily and your wonderful grace. In Jesus' name, amen.